Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, y'all, today is it's a, it's a sad day. Because today we wrap up this series that we have been in for the last four weeks. Well, today makes five, titled Theology. What we're over the course of this particular series, we've been talking about the doctrine or the theology of salvation, and in particular, three grandiose, theological, almost intimidating terms justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, it's not lost on me or really anyone around here that this is probably a topic that most of you have likely never given a single thought to prior to this series. But as we've been asking throughout this series, if if we don't teach you about this stuff here, where where else are you going to learn it from? As I've been reminding us, that's not to suggest that you can't find this information anywhere else, but come on, let's just be honest. The reality is most of us, well, we just... We just won't. Those YouTube videos are just way too distracting. And and I happen to believe, and I recognize that I might be a little bit biased, that that this content is really, really important since, you know, when we're talking about salvation, we are talking about our eternal futures. And and this is a topic that, that we all actually, whether you've ever realized it or not, we've all given some thought to. In fact, it's questions surrounding eternity that lead more people to come walking through the doors of a church, probably really more than any other types of questions. These are these questions like, hey, what happens to me when I die? Do I just kind of like decompose and turn to dirt? Or is there something after this life? Does how I live my life on this earth have an impact on my eternity? Or is it like all predetermined or... Does what I do here and now actually matter in some sense? Where exactly does the line fall between good and and bad? Because at a certain point, we all, or I shouldn't say all, most of us come to grips with the fact that we're not actually that good, that that if we're being totally honest, admittedly, this is a hard thing to admit, most of what comes natural to us usually isn't what's best for us or the people around us. So, so, So where exactly is that line between good people and bad people and where do I fall? Like, what side of that line am I falling on? And all these questions carry, right, a certain amount of weight, even if we never actually verbalize them. But isn't it true that they carry even more weight when, when they're being asked by another person in our presence? And, and, and that, oh my goodness, moment kind of hits you where you suddenly figure out you're not the only one who's wrestling with this stuff. And maybe if we are all at some level pondering these questions, perhaps there really are some concrete answers and it's not all just left to chance. Allow me maybe to dig a little bit deeper and in particular talk to you parents out there. Isn't it especially sobering when the individual asking this question is, is your own child? Daddy, what, what happens to me when I die? Well, well, no longer in that moment are hypotheticals and theories good enough. You want some answers, and you want them like now. And for some of you, here you are. It's actually just that that led you to kind of checking out this church thing today. Admittedly, it's as good of a reason as any other. But but what does it say about us? What does it say about human beings that, that we all wrestle with these same questions? 
that, that nobody, there's never been anyone in the history of the world that comes to the end of their life without having spent significant time wondering uh, about what happens to them when they die and how this time on this earth might impact that. C.S. Lewis, in one of his most famous quotes, he, he frames it this way. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so this whole conversation surrounding salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, it might just be more relevant to you than you've ever realized. And if those types of questions are exactly what drove you to begin exploring or Perhaps you've actually been at this church thing for as long as you can remember. It's become as natural to you, almost as, as breathing. But, but you haven't given this as much thought as, as you probably should have. If you've never graduated from Sunday school, well, just believe faith to adult, real-world, defendable faith. You owe it to yourself to get the facts and explore this at a deeper level. And so my encouragement to every single one of us, no matter where you would find yourself today on this whole faith journey, is that if you haven't been with us for the entirety of this series, uh, go back, get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or find us in our Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab those podcasts. But today is, is going to kind of serve as the cherry on top of this entire series, as we tie a bow on where we've been and we look at how justification, sanctification, and glorification all tie together. But, but in order for that to make sense, we have to have at least a baseline understanding of each of these three themes. And so just in case you haven't been with us for the entirety of the series, I'm about to offer us a 90-second recap. And in part one, we learned about justification, that the means by which we receive salvation or are declared righteous or are justified in the eyes of God, which comes about by placing your trust, your faith, your belief, synonymous terms in Jesus and belief in Jesus alone. It is only through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross that we will be declared righteous or we will be justified in the eyes of God. And this happens in an instant. I mean, just like that, we get that right standing back. We're justified by placing our faith in Jesus. And then we spent two weeks speaking about the why and the how as we spoke about sanctification, the process by which the follower of Jesus is becoming more like Christ. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. To sanctify a person is to make him or her holy. So, so justification is just mentioned. It happens in an instant, but sanctification is a lifelong process, a, a process that, as noted, will certainly have its highs and will definitely have its lows, a process that also, mind you, is utterly hopeless without three primary tools that are offered to us by God himself, and we covered these at length. His word, his unchanging word, that not just a version of truth, the Bible is quite literally the truth, reminding us when we've wandered off the path, reminding and pointing us back almost to our true north. He also gives us his church, a community of people who are also moving towards Jesus. This was never meant to be a, an isolation thing. It was always meant to be done in, in community. And then, of course, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who goes with us, before us, and after us, that the God of the universe quite do, literally dwells inside the follower of Jesus. And we don't get to pick and choose. We need all three in this process of sanctification. But as we spoke about last week, at this current moment, our justification, what it is that God says about us through Christ, it does not match our sanctification. 
Though as followers of Jesus, we are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, none of us here on this earth will achieve perfection, or as I framed it last week, unadulterated holiness, which of course brings us to glorification. God's final removal of sin from those who have been justified in the eternal state. Instead of being mortals burdened with sin nature, we will be changed into holy immortals with direct and unhindered access to God's presence, enjoying holy communion with him throughout eternity. In our glorification, that there will be an overcoming of the damage caused by sin and a transformation from the material to the resurrection world. In our glorification, something reserved, by the way, only for those who have been justified before God because of the redemptive work of Jesus, your actual condition will match what God says about you in Christ. So, so no longer is the redemptive work of Jesus just a covering over you. No, in our glorification, your actual condition will be like that of Jesus. And, and that honor, it'll protect us from sin and falling away and will ensure that we suffer no pain in the way that we do here on earth. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more worry, no more fear, no more anxiety. It's, it's so good that it's honestly hard to even imagine. So, so just as there are important stages in our physical lives, what we see as we explore the doctrine of salvation, there are important stages in our spiritual lives as well. Just as we are physically born and we go to school and we get a job, so spiritually we're born again in Christ. We are made new in Christ by his redemptive work. We grow in holiness through the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, and through the church, and eventually we go to be with God forever. Now, throughout this series, we've been looking at each of these three phases in, in isolation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But uh, this morning, and part of what we wanted to do this morning was look at them in conjunction with one another. So we've come up with this uh, rather helpful chart that I think will help uh, see the greater picture here. Justification, as you can see right here, is something that, again, it occurs in the past. It's a one-time event. The minute that you place your trust or your faith in Jesus, it immediately becomes a past event. Just like that, you are justified in the eyes of God. Sanctification is what is presently happening. You, you are being sanctified. You are becoming more and more holy. You're being more and more conformed into the image of Christ, something that we'll experience throughout our entire lives. And then glorification is something that we look forward to in the future. It's a promise given to us by, by God himself. And again, as I'll remind us, that's not an empty promise that that hasn't come through in the past. No, this is the God who literally got off of his throne and offered his life for you. Justification it is a fact. You are justified before God because of the redemptive work of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for you, because he loves you so much. Sanctification, as we've been driving home throughout the series, is a process, a process that'll have highs, these mountaintop experiences, and it'll also have these valleys, it'll also have these lows. We're never going to get to the place where we're honestly perfect, but we are being more and more conformed into the image of Christ through this process of sanctification. And then glorification is, is a promise. It's a promise of something to come. Justification is positional. As we currently stand positionally, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been made right with God through the redemptive work of Jesus. Sanctification is progressive. Again, we are being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. We are becoming more mature in our faith. 
as we grow in our faith, as we lean on the Holy Spirit, we lean on his word, we lean on his church, hopefully we're gossiping less and lying less and exaggerating less and we're more patient, we're more gentle, becoming and looking more and more like Jesus himself. And then in our glorification, this is, this is permanent. No longer where we have these, these valleys and mountaintop experiences. No, we will actually be like Christ. Justification says, I am in Christ. But because of what Jesus has done for me, the gigantic leap he has taken towards me, and because I have put my faith in him, I am now in Christ. Sanctification says, I am being conformed into the image of Christ. And glorification says, I will be with Christ. I will be like Christ. In justification, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we're being saved from the power of sin. And in glorification, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Now, the underlying tension here and where I want to land this plane this morning is, is the fact that this process is indeed exclusionary. And, and here's what I mean. If you are a Jesus follower you are guaranteed all three steps. You're forever justified, you're being sanctified, and you will for sure be glorified. After all, as we discussed last week, this isn't an empty promise devoid of hope. This isn't crossing our fingers and going, oh my goodness, I hope this works out. No, 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 no. It's a promise that has its roots in a God who got off of his throne for you, a God who eventually give his life for you. All three of these justification, sanctification, glorification are because of God's grace, not because of anything you have done or ever will do. He made all of this available to you because of his love for you. Again, we can't earn it, nor have we ever done anything that has caused God to lean our direction. But, but it's exclusionary in that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you will receive none of this. Now, the reason I'm, I'm making a point of this is because we live in what could reasonably be dubbed a live and, and let live society, where if in any area you're pushing, or in this case, inviting people into, if it results in a good outcome for some people and a less than great outcome for other people, or appropriately stated, it is by definition exclusionary, it immediately gets labeled as hate. Live and let live. If you're propagating something that infringes upon or excludes against what I want or what comes natural to me or how I want to live my life, then, then right, you must be like a hateful bigot. But, but let me remind us that when we are talking about Jesus, and, and I want you to keep in mind, many religious people have botched this up. And, and so if you're watching here today and you've been hurt by religion or religious institutions or religious people, I would not dare sit here right now and attempt to deny your experiences. You likely have every right to be angry and frustrated and hurt, and I'm sure that if I shared in the same experience, I would feel the exact same way. But when we're talking about Jesus and the new that he ushered into this world, I'm telling you, words like bigotry, judgment, hate, that they would quite literally be the last words that you would use to describe Jesus. And, and if you roll your eyes at that and you don't believe me, stop taking my word for it. 
Stop taking other pastors' words for it. Just investigate this yourself. Open up the Gospels, those, those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus that we find right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read about the life of Jesus. Read what love personified actually looks like. And I think you might be surprised at what a complete departure Jesus is from what you might have experienced in environments like this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Is Christianity, is following Jesus exclusionary, if you want to label it as such? Sure. But but is it hateful, bigoted, ripe with judgment? Not a chance, at least not what Jesus originally intended. Because let us remember that at the epicenter of the Christian faith is a man who was brutally tortured, beaten, and nailed to a cross, covered in his own blood and the saliva of other men. The God of the universe subjected himself to that type of pain, shame, and embarrassment for you. Also that you might have the opportunity to get that right standing back with him, the right standing that we all screwed up when we sinned, when we rebelled, all because he loves you that much. Jesus himself, he actually frames it this way. He says, for this is how God loved the world. He demonstrated, he showed his love. He didn't just talk about it. He showed us. He gave freely his one and only son so that everyone who believes that's simple. Who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son Jesus into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Now, now let me just ask you, does, does that sound more like hate or love? Bigotry or kindness? Judgment or affection? Now, he does go on in the very next verse, the very next thing out of his mouth. He says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. He's talking about Jesus. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Now, that verse in isolation, verse 18, it it feels harsh. It, It sort of feels, dare I say it, hateful or bigoted. Until, of course, you consider the greater context and you remind yourself of the great lengths that God has already went to in order to demonstrate his love for you when you look back on the verses that preceded it and you remind yourself that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world, to save you. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. It's a reference to Jesus himself. But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So if you read this and you ask yourself, is Jesus sort of exclusionary? You bet. But Jesus points out something here that is, dare I say it, of even greater importance today than it was when he first uttered these words, as we find ourselves in this particular cultural moment, this live and let live society. Jesus points out here that we bring the exclusion upon ourselves when we reject him. See, Jesus comes along and he flings the door wide open when he freely offers himself as the sacrifice for our sin problem, not his. 
And if you decide to slam the door right back in his face, he's like, well, that's, that's on you. He's not going to force himself upon you. He's not going to stop you from doing so. No, he demonstrated his trustworthiness when he died for you, and now he says, hey, will you trust me in return? And so if you're tracking with me, admittedly, sometimes people, as, as a pastor, they'll, they'll throw this in my face as this kind of gotcha moment. And so I think it maybe surprises them a little bit when I kind of nod my head in agreement. They're like, well, Jesus offers acceptance, but with a catch. Right you are. And before you roll your eyes and you exclaim, I knew it, and you write Jesus off because you can't be bothered with someone who might be offering something with strings attached, I'm just asking that you give me just a couple more minutes of your time. See, what Jesus is offering, or perhaps better stated, inviting you into, is so much more than simply believe, and that's it. And believe, and then just kind of keep on living your life how, how you want to live it. But because let's be honest, that, that sort of sounds a lot like what the world is offering. It, it sort of sounds and honestly feels like live and let live. But, but Jesus, and don't miss this, Jesus loves you way too much to leave you in the same condition as you were before you encountered him. And so Jesus, he looks at you and he says, follow me. And when you follow someone, there's an implicit trust there. When I ask my children to follow me, they don't really honestly ask a lot of questions. They turn around and they're just at my heels. And with Jesus, it's not a blind trust. It's an exceedingly informed trust. He has proven himself trustworthy, and now he asks you to trust him in return. He, he proved himself trustworthy, and he gave his life for you, and now he says, hey, will you just trust me in return? And, and as we follow him, he's, he's going to ask us to do some stuff. And he'll probably ask you to give up some stuff, and he'll probably want to strip away some stuff that is ultimately holding us back. And you're going to be tempted at points to push back and exclaim, okay, Jesus, this is too far. I don't go any further than this. This right here, Jesus, is where I draw the line. And politely, gently, kindly, Jesus will lean into those situations and he'll ask you, hey, haven't I already shown you time and time and time again that, that you can trust me? I mean, with all due respect, where has your way of doing things gotten you to this point? How about we keep giving my way a shot? After all, haven't I already shown you just how for you I am? Because Jesus, and I alluded to this just a moment ago, he loves you way too much to continue to allow you to screw up your life and even the lives around you by your own poor decision-making. He's offering you something so much better, not only for you, but all the people, again, around you. Jesus loves you, in fact, way too much to just let you live. No, no, when he got off of his throne and he gave his life for you, he declared, I love you too much to watch from a distance as you destroy your life and the lives around you. I have something so much better for you. Think about this. With Jesus, <laughs> even the catch is for you. It doesn't in some way benefit Jesus. It always 
benefits you. It is for your benefit. So yes, Jesus offers acceptance with a catch, but a catch that is rooted in restoration, in love, in mercy, in kindness. The catch that doesn't declare, now finally I'm getting what I want, but instead always looks to you, often further down the road than we have the ability to see and gently nudges us towards this is where you ultimately want to go. It doesn't play the short game. It looks at the big picture, not only in the here and now of this earth, but it also peers around the corner into eternity. See, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're watching right now and you kind of wholeheartedly rejected Jesus, you, whether you've put it together, you're still chasing after what it is that we've been talking about in this series. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's just been on your terms. See, we're all trying to prove ourselves before a God that may or may not exist, and we're definitely all trying to prove ourselves before other people or prove our, our righteousness. That kind of sounds like justification on your terms. We're all trying to be good in this life, however we might define that. That sort of sounds like sanctification on your terms. And we're all trying to leave something, that this, this lasting legacy that will be remembered after we die. And again, that kind of sounds like glorification on your terms. But come on, isn't it true that we always fall short that these pursuits have actually shown you to be a fleeting investment? Well, let's return to that quote from C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And Jesus offers you access to, to, to steal C.S. Lewis's terminology, to that other world. But, but make no mistake, this is something reserved only for those whom have decided to follow Jesus. It's exclusionary, if that's the term that you'd like to use, but as Jesus himself reminds us, it's only exclusionary if you choose to walk that path, if you choose to reject Jesus. You cannot earn your justification. You cannot achieve your sanctification and you cannot merit your glorification. Jesus is the one who paved the way for all of this because of his incredible mercy and his incredible love for you. Now, wherever you're watching from right now, I want to invite all of us to just close our eyes and maybe just extend our hands like this with palms up as just kind of a posture to say, Heavenly Father, I'm ready to receive whatever it is that that you want to speak to me right now. And I, I want to pray some words that we find in a letter titled Romans. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the early Christian church in Rome. Honestly, a culture that I think we'd probably find more similarities to 21st century America than, than differences. And here in Romans chapter 10, Paul reminds us, and I want to pray this over us, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. 
They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made the standard so simple. We thank you for paving the way that we might be justified before you by sending your one and your only son. I pray that even right now in this moment, you would be softening hearts, that people would stop putting up walls, the what ifs, the fear, the anxiety that can come with this, and, and they would just trust you that they would choose to trust in, in your mighty, in your saving name of your son, Jesus. We thank you that all who call on your name will be justified before you, and in turn, we'll eventually experience glorification. We'll be ushered into the gates of eternity. You are so good, you are so kind, you are so patient, you are so gentle. It's your name, your, your holy, saving name that we pray. Amen.